Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padumaro, and Ruben, or Barefoot Farmer, and Ben, also known as Ben Gracier, the one who keeps this podcast growing. It's episode 21. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little mel- with a little met with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. So this week, we're going to go on a wild ride. And by wild ride, I mean probably an absolute snooze fest, because as far as I can tell, it seems like Ruben forgot that we were recording tonight. So we are doing a solo cast. But I felt it was really important to keep the Farming Eternal train going and have uh, and release an episode every week. So here goes nothing. But this week, we're going to follow a very similar format to As Usual. So first we'll go over Card of the Week, then we'll do our 7-1 breakdown, thank all of our contributors, and then we're going to talk about Justice, uh, Commons and Uncommons, as well as a few uh, things in our main topic, which I refer as Patrick's Random Thoughts. So to begin with, uh, how was your draft week? Well, Ben says, great, once I stopped forcing Primal for testing because of the buffs, started doing well again. So I kind of agree with Ben here. It does seem like even though they buffed two of Primal's commons, I don't think that's what the problem was with Primal, and I don't know how much it's actually helped. At least from my perspective, I haven't been seeing a lot more Primal decks, and I know Ben and I have been talking about how Primal hasn't seemed much better from trying it out a bit. We've been talking about over and over again on the podcast that it just seems like Primal is fundamentally at odds with itself in its cards. Some of its cards are aggressively slanted, while some of it is very defensive, and it doesn't seem like it's very easy to make a cohesive deck out of Primal. Uh, My week turned out much for the better because for this podcast, I was getting a draft ready. I had a Praxis deck that I was 2-2 with, and I thought, oh, well, let me just quickly lose my third game, and then I can screenshot a draft and get it ready for the podcast tonight. Instead of doing that, I rattled off five wins in a row, ate all my prep time up, and um, am now doing the podcast alone. But I did get my seven win, which is uh, very exciting. Um, So... Even though I'm not playing as much, I haven't gotten too rusty. Okay, so now we'll go to Listener of the Week. Uh, the Listener of the Week is uh, Jedi EJ. We've referred to him as Caesar C before, too, uh, because before we realized that they were the same person, uh, we were just re- receiving their receiving their deck lists as Caesar C. But uh, Jedi EJ has sent in a ton of deck lists. He's a streamer on Twitch. You can find him at Jedi EJ or Jedi underscore EJ. He also has a podcast called Eternal Journey, but he's a really positive, chill dude, and he does a lot of drafts on his stream, and also talks about the podcasts a lot, which uh, we really appreciate, and I'm glad he listens to the podcast and is getting something out of it. So thank you, Jedi, for sending in all the deck lists that you do and for talking about the show as much as you do. We really appreciate it. This week, Ben's card of the week is Beast Caller's Amulet. And he says, Everyone knows that Heretic's Cannon has a huge effect on win rates, and it does. It appears almost five times as often as a random uncommon in fire decks. 
And Heretics Canon obviously sets the pace for best-of-class cards, but Beast Caller's Amulet, which is the three-shadow, plus-one, plus-zero uh, weapon that has infiltrate uh, play a 5-5, five, five, is actually just right behind it. And it's only, it's only about 10% behind it, and it's actually the number two uncommon in the spreadsheet. It's really interesting to me because Beast Caller's Amulet seems like it shouldn't be in the same league as Heretics Cannon. I think it obviously, or maybe not obviously, a very powerful card. And I think it's actually more powerful than it looks because, I mean, it's obviously playing a three mana five five is a, a, a very powerful ability, but it is conditional. It's only adding one attack to whoever you put it on. And so it feels much more like the power of Beast Caller's Amulet is when you actually have it on three. And that its utility actually goes downhill later in the game. Because a 5-5, five, five, in this format, is always pretty impressive, but it does get less impressive as the game goes on. And like turn 6, turn 7, turn 8, so on, you put a Beast Caller's Amulet on a unit you're not necessarily going to be able to infiltrate. And even if you do, it's not necessarily going to win you a game. While Heretic's Cannon, you know, you can't play it before turn six, but on turn six, it can win you a game out of nowhere. While Beast Caller's Amulet, even if you can infiltrate, it's still going to take you a few turns to win because all you did really was get to get a non-evasive 5-5. Five, five on the board. So I feel like there's a lot of ways to talk yourself out of Beast Caller's Amulet being an amazing card, but the stats show that it is that it's very good. It's one of the top uncommons and it's in a lot of the shadow decks that we receive and it's really pulling up shadow. It's one of the most important cards for shadow deck. So anyway, it's it's just a interesting thought that like you know, Heretic's Cannon gets all the glory in this set, but Beast Caller's Amulet is actually doing quite a lot of work behind the scenes. And so if you're not picking it highly or just thinking like, or thinking it's uh, maybe it's not as good as it looks because it's just situational, it's actually performing, it's actually performing well and it might be a sleeper card and a card that you want to start putting in your decks if you aren't already. Okay, so my card of the week, uh, this would work a lot better if uh, Ruben were here, but he's not. Um, so my usual uh, <laughs> card choice where I pick a card and then just ask him if he thinks it's good or not is not going to work. But I have a backup plan. Mark from the Misplay Podcast, uh, I hear recently you lost your podcasting gig. So uh, if you'd like to send your resume to farmingeternal at gmail.com, we are also looking for a new co-host. But anyway, the, my, my card of the week is a Mining Team, which is the 4-Fire 2-2 two, two with Warp and Scout and Shift 2. The reason I wanted to talk about this card is I was kind of playing with Ben's spreadsheet this week, and this is one of the cards that popped out at me as doing surprisingly well. The 22nd best common, it's, it's two times the replacement level card for a common 
in any color. It's the second best four drop behind Tord Test Pilot as far as commons go, and which is obviously a great card. But then you could think, well, Mining Team is really not a four drop. It's more of a two drop. But it's actually a really good, it's really, it's really high up for two drops too. Better than Learned Herbalist, uh, Skelly Gruon, Blink Wolf, Steadfast Paladin, Displaced Aroctodon, and it's kind of blowing my mind. So I've been going back and forth with Ben this week about what about Mining Team is so good. And he thinks it's the flexibility because it's both the four drop and a two drop and it has warp and it's scouts. So it kind of does a little bit of everything. So even though you look at it and you think, wow, that's a four power two two, that's horrible. There's actually a lot going on with this card sort of behind the scenes which I think is why it's showing up so high in our spreadsheets, and which means it's showing up in so many deck lists. You know, the fact that you can warp this off the top of your deck, so it's like drawing a card, then you get the scout, and then in three turns you get a 2-2, is actually subtly powerful. And I'm still not convinced, I, I still can't believe in my heart of hearts that it's as good as it is, I do think it is worth the consideration, and it's another card that I think it's obvious. It's definitely, and I'm in no way saying it's as powerful as Beast Caller's Amulet, but I think it's another card that's worth consideration that if you're not taking it because you're thinking of it as just a 4-fire 2-2, two, two, that there's more going on with this card, and I think it's worth maybe picking a little higher and adding it to your deck and seeing how it plays out for you. Okay, we survived our first solo card of the week. Now on to 7-win breakdown. This is luckily the section I usually just talk to myself, so this should be easy. Uh, this week, we got 64 lists from 31 listeners, putting us over 150 uh, unique submitters, and we're closing in on 300 lists for the Set 6 format. We're just so excited. Uh, I want to, once again, as always, thank everyone who submits, submits a deck list. It's been really awesome. And I mentioned this at the beginning of the last podcast, but I said this last week, but I also really want to thank Ben for taking over the 7Win Spreadsheet project and responding to everyone's emails and really doing like the most amazing job. And once again, I hope everyone appreciates how much work Ben is putting into compiling all these stats so that we as the Eternal community can get a better idea how this draft format's shaking up and like like we just talked about with Mining Team and Beast Caller's Amulet, really get down into the nitty-gritty and figure out what cards are doing surprisingly well or surprisingly poorly. And it's uh, one of the big uh, motivating factors for this show. So thank you, Ben. Um, and thank you, listeners, for submitting deck lists. Uh, ben does have a small administrative note. I know originally, way back, way back, we were accepting uh, screenshots for deck lists, but in order for Ben to do his spreadsheet, he had to manually enter those screenshots into Eternal Warcry to get an actual exported deck list. So he's saying, and since we've gotten so many deck lists already for this format, he would really appreciate if everyone would send in exported deck lists or Eternal Warcry links instead of images to save him quite a bit of time. So we would appreciate if everyone sort of followed Ben's request and from now on only submitted deck lists as either exported deck lists or Eternal Warcry links. 
So for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, we do collect everyone's seven win deck lists and we do put it in and we compile it and we have two spreadsheets. You can find the links to those on the webpage that Ben made, which is which a link to that is in the show notes. And we have one which kind of breaks it down faction by faction and another Ben sheet which goes card by card and will sort of has a bunch of metrics to show you how cards are doing relative to each other. And as always, we like to thank everyone who contributed a deck list this week. So as for new contributors, there's Dendro Aspis, Eric G. Haugun, John K., Josh K., Kelavaster, Madness, Marsh Panic, and Nagsilis, who sent in eight decks this week. And every time I opened up my opened up the Farming Eternal email this week, it seemed like um, they had sent in a new deck list. So thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. And even those, everyone who sent in just a deck list, uh, we appreciate all all the information. You know, the more the more different contributors that we get deck lists from, sort of the better the data will be, I think. Now for our veteran listeners, our veteran contributors, we have Ben Gracier, Celtic Guardian 7, Elliot R, Gato Sujo, Great White, Hats on Lamps, Hot Nickelball, Induku, Jedi EJ, KRL013, Mariah H, Neat S, Raven Dragon, Rofer, Smiley Z, Spiffy Man, Tempest Dragon King, Terran Flame, Zuta, Yam Yam with five lists, Yist Out, Zarena, and Zuby. Thank you again. We appreciate you uh, sending in lists week after week. We have a pretty similar overall breakdown this week. Time fell slightly um, with below 40% um, of decks this last week, but is still pretty high overall. Primal actually continues to fall, and this is like sort of week on week on falling. So it's not like, oh, it's still doing bad. It's actually doing worse than it did last week before the buffs. And it'll be interesting to see how long Primal can continue to fall because uh, we had a a slight jump in primal uh, three or four weeks ago, but ever since then, it's actually continued to fall week on week on. Uh, Shadow gained some, and Fire actually continued to gain. So not only was uh, Fire uh, the number one faction this week, it was actually did even better than the last week. So it continued to raise its overall um, its overall average compared to the rest of the field, which is pretty amazing, being that it was already number one. But Shadow did pick up some slack this week, climbed a little bit, Justice climbed a little bit. So it seems like at least the buff to Shadow uh, helped it a bit because it had a pretty big jump this week. Uh, we've been going through the through the top commons of each color. We've already done Fire and Time, so now we're on Justice. And the top commons in Justice are the top normalized commons in Justice. So that means the um, the cards that are in the draft packs, because there's more commons in the draft pack, you see them less often. So we normalize the, the two pack rates so that you we can get a better comparison because we're trying to figure out the comparative strength of these cards to each other based on how often they appear, appear in our deck lists. So number one is Retribution by quite a wide margin. Then as we've talked a few times before, uh, Argentport Soldier and Tor Test Pilot are sort of in a tier two um, behind Retribution and they're sort of neck and neck with each other. 
And then there's sort of a third tier, which is Svieta's Faithful and Fall Short and a little under that Steadfast Paladin. I think what what's interesting here is, um, you know, Justice is really telling an aggressive story with its top commons. I mean, obviously, Retribution, you can use aggressively or defensively. You know, it's just a very good kill spell, no matter what the situation is, as long as you have a unit on board. But, you know, Argentport Soldier, Suyetta's Faithful, Steadfast Paladin are all <clears throat> good to great uh, two drops. And then there's Fall Short, a very cheap interactive spell. And then there's Torrid Test Pilot, which while it does have defensive stat line, it is a flyer and you can quickly and cheaply turn it into quite an aggressive, uh, evasive beater. So, so I think that's a pretty interesting um, thing to note is just just how sort of low to the ground the top justice commons are. Um, you know, it, it's, it's very similar to fire, but like while time corrupted behemoth is head and shoulders, the top time common and that comes in as a five drop. Uh, justice uncommons, there's the crown watch standard, which is the, um, the justice standard, which when you hit five power turns into, turns into a two power combat trick that gives plus three, plus three and life steal. So that is a very powerful card. There's Relentless Deadshot, which is the is the two justice two two with life steal that you can that you can shift to uh, stun an enemy unit. There's uh, Steel Legion is number three, which is the five justice justice flying and <clears throat> flying endurance. And then there's Throne Warden, which is the five justice four four Aegis gain four armor uh, unit. So once again, um, you know, the top two commons and Crown Watch Standard is once again, sort of like Retribution, sort of head and shoulders, the number one justice uncommon and followed sort of by a second tier, which includes all three, uh, uh, the next three, Relentless Deadshot, Steel Legion and Throne Warden. It's really interesting because I feel like the first two, especially continue to tell that same aggressive justice sto story you know crown watch standard is is a very powerful combat trick it's you know plus three plus three is just you know it can be defensive it can gain you life but i think you use it more often as an offensive combat trick and relentless deadshot too you know it does give you lifesteal it does help you stabilize a little in that way but you know you're most often using it to stun a unit and to get in you know, that last damage. And even Steel Legion, um, you know, it's it's expensive, but you know, a four four flyer is a can be a beater too. I think uh one of the most interesting things, and this is sort of a tangent, is just how good the standards seem to be in this format. I mean, I think we all knew that they were very good cards. Yeah, Shugo Standard is actually the second best fire uncommon right behind Heretic's Cannon. And it is doing really well. It's actually the number one standard, which is kind of interesting because you would think that the Crown Watch standard is a little bit more powerful. For those of you who don't know, the Shugo Tactic, uh, the Fire standard, is um, it gives a unit plus four, plus two, and Overwhelm. While the Crown Watch standard gives plus three, plus three, and uh, Lifesteal. But I think actually the Shugo standard 
while maybe like in a vacuum less powerful, fits the game plan of fire, which is a very aggressive game plan where you're trying to get in that last bit of damage. And the fact that it gives overwhelm is just so very important, you know, and then the shadow standard is the third highest standard. And it's actually, you know, three and a half times the background rate. So still a very, very powerful uncommon. And even actually, and then even actually the clan and temple, the primal and time standards are also, you know, doing well above what you would think uh, an average uncommon card. And this is actually in contrast to the coins. You know, I think the coins were very hyped up at the start of the format. And I'm not saying that they're bad or anything. But if you look at our spreadsheet, they aren't doing as well as one would think. You know, there's a lot of possible reasons for this. I mean, the only one that's doing really well is the primal one, which I think is uh, the most obviously powerful just on the face of it. The fact, but it's also a little tricky because we also have so few primal decks that, you know, the primal cards, the relative ranking of primal cards can be attributed slightly more to statistical noise than um, some of the other um, colors like fire where we have over 150 deck lists. But even like the granite coin, which you think would be, which is, I think, that next most obviously powerful coin and then the emerald coin all don't seem to be as important or just not in as many decks as you would think they would be as a free card you know they're just a power so they're they're not really taking up a slot and so you would think you could be able to stuff more of them in your deck i do wonder personally if part of that is just that people are, are struggling so much for playables as it is <clears throat> Oftentimes they feel like they can't afford to stick a to pick a coin early on, but that doesn't totally explain it because th then that would mean that the coins should be coming late when you are finally able to pick them, but they're not coming in, you know. But the de the decks that we receive just don't have them, so the coins are obviously out there somewhere. They're just not making it into the seven win deck lists that we receive. So I'm not really sure if this should uh, change, you know, anyone's evaluation of the coins, but I just thought it was like really interesting to note because you have these two different depleted powers that affect the board, but the, but the tactic cycle is just way, way, way more represented in our deck lists than the coins are given their um, you know, if you normalize their rarity. So it's just a pretty interesting thing to keep in mind. And it kind of makes me, leads me to believe that maybe the coins were a little overhyped to begin with and are not quite as powerful as they first seemed as a utility power. Then just for complete, completion's sake, uh, the Justice Rares. The number one Justice Rare is uh, Minotaur Platemaker, which is the four Justice Justice 2-5 double damage. Pay two and twist Minotaur Platemaker to play a 2-2 weapon on one of your other units that isn't wielding a weapon. Then there is Winchest Merchant and Withstand, which is the plus four, plus four Endurance. Now, now that it was uh, nerfed recently. So I would bet now that Withstand was nerfed, it's probably going to 
be not quite as important or as powerful as it was um, pre-nerf. And so its relative standing, I think, is going to drop now. Uh, Minotaur Plate Maker also, <laughs> interestingly, you know, we have 15 of them in our 134 deck lists, or justice deck lists. But actually, 10, <laughs> about 10 of them came in decks in the first week or two, and then its rate of appearance has drastically dropped uh, since then. So I'm wondering if people have been able to adjust to it a little bit, or could also just be variants that we got a slew of them at, at first, but it is no longer sort of the premium, premium rare, sort of like Moonstone Vanguard or even uh, Torgov is, who are just like consistently appearing in deck lists um, week after week in their respective colors. Okay, so now uh, on to the main topic. And the thing that I kind of wanted to talk about this week, uh, which I think was really interesting, and this is a bit of a retrospective from episode 19 in the draft, where our pack one, pick one, Ruben and I, we did a live draft, and we picked Eclipse Dragon, which is the five fire fire, uh, four four flying charge haste uh, with a sort of useless ability on top of that, I think, as far as draft is concerned. So that was our first pick. Then uh, we opened pack two, and the rare is still in the pack, and that's the Senway Smuggler, which is the Stone Scar Smuggler. And this is a three fire, three fire shadow, three two, shift three. So I think of all the smugglers, this is probably one of the worst abilities for a smuggler. So it's really just a vanilla three power three two with the upside of being able to access a black market. Uh, the other card that we considered in contention, there was an eviscerate, which is the five shadow shadow kill an enemy unit onslaught. The enemy discards five cards and then a daring maneuver. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is there's just like a, when you look at our spreadsheet, there's just like a lot of interesting things going on with this pick. Uh, the number one, the first thing that I noticed, and this is, I think, maybe not super useful information, but Eclipse Dragon is like not really appearing a lot in our deck lists. The, actually, the other five power four four flying fire unit is actually appearing way more in the street in our sheet and that's a pouncing drake which is five fire fire and it's a four four flying warp uh unit i think this must the the reason that pouncing drake is doing so much better than eclipse dragon really can't be due to power level um i know warp is powerful but it's i think it's a little less powerful on really expensive units because it's a lot harder to just like warp them at any time. And the fact that Eclipse Dragon has quick draw and charge just makes it seem like it must, it, it's probably that it must be more powerful. And so the fact that it's not appearing in deck lists, I think means that it has to be something along the lines of like, since Eclipse Dragon is a set six card and it's currently playable in Constructed as compared to Pouncing Drake, that it's probably just getting picked higher. And so even people who don't necessarily rare draft are still rare drafting Eclipse Dragon <laughs> oh, just because they need it for their collection. 
even if they're not rare drafting, if a pouncing Drake comes up. And so more pouncing Drakes are getting passed around to the people who want them, which is why they're appearing in our deck list. You know, because the other example of this is actually Elder Astrologer, which continues to be sort of a premium rare in our spreadsheet and is in, um, you know, quite a few of our winning shadow deck lists and is, you know, way above sort of background rate, is doing actually much better than um, Eclipse Dragon 2, which is not even double sort of the background rate for what a rare should be. So I don't know. There's a lot to think about. Um, I, you know, I'd be interesting to hear if, why uh, other people think that Eclipse Dragon might not be appearing in as many deck lists as Pouncing Drake or Elder Astrologer, because it really does seem to me that it can't be on power level, but maybe I'm missing something. So now that with now with that out of the way, you know, that was our first pick. You know, going into the second pick, you know, Ruben. Ruben really likes the smugglers, and so he, he that was the card that he kind of called out. But sort of looking back on this pick and then looking at our spreadsheet, like Senway Smuggler is sort of, I keep talking about background rate, but is just like what you would consider appears in our deck list at almost exactly background rate. So it appears as often as a random sort of middle of the road rare would appear. While there are actually a lot of uh, these commons that appear, th there's a few of these commons that are actually uh, sort of well above that background rate. And, you know, so Senway Smuggler is, I think, not a great smuggler. It's not doing particularly well in our spreadsheet. It is two colors. So I think I disagree with Ruben and sort of agree with Ben and what mom were saying that it's just not worth picking a smuggler this early. I know we have fire in our color, but it just doesn't seem worth it to jump into a dual faction this early. And also I think, and this is, I think this is something that people out, you know, that you have to watch out for if you know you're not a robot and not a perfect drafter is the fact that you know, your early picks are going to influence you in sometimes negative ways and make you think your draft is going in a direction it's not really. And I think adding, you know, picking a stone, uh, a dual faction smuggler this early can really influence you into thinking suddenly that you are stone scar when you just happen to pick a dual faction card. And that is, and it doesn't, it only means you have one card in Fire and Shadow. It doesn't mean you are a Fire and Shadow deck. So then, you know, the next two cards to look at are Eviscerate and Daring Maneuver. And this is an this is another um, interesting thing, you know, because this is once again, like Eviscerate, I think, in a vacuum, is obviously a more powerful card than Daring Maneuver. I mean, obviously, Eviscerate is a five-cost card compared to a two-cost Daring Maneuver. But... The ability to kill any unit is just very powerful. But then if you look at our spreadsheet, Eviscerate is just not doing very good at all. I mean, it's above background rate, but it's not a premium card. It's the 40th best common in our spreadsheet, and it's not even the best shadow removal. Actually, Extract is, which is the ninth best common in our spreadsheet. And the only sort of five-cost removal that is doing well is Gun Down, 
which is the 18th best common uh, compared to eviscerate, which is the 40th best common. And all the other ones like inspired obedience, um, there's the really crappy justice one, are all just doing really horrible in our spreadsheet. But the fact that eviscerate is doing horrible was, I think, just very surprising to me. And I think you can explain this, I want to say fairly easily. I, I don't mean that in that this is actually the right explanation, but I think it is um, an obvious, a plausible story. And that's the fact that shadow is just not as aggressive of a color as fire is. Fire just has really good units and most of the fire decks that we see are aggressive, are doing damage, and are just needing to get through to do that last few points of damage to kill their opponent. And in that case, Gun Down is a very good card because, you know, Gun Down, even though it's it's in a vacuum, less powerful than Eviscerate, since Eviscerate has no conditionality while Gun Down has a bunch. It can't kill a quick draw unit. It can't kill a unit with six health but being able to do that five damage to kill a sentinel or to kill to get one blocker out of the way to do those final few points of damage just means that any kill spell will help fire while the same is not true in shadow you know even though eviscerate is a more powerful card the shadow decks are are playing i seem to be playing i i guess a more defensive game or are just not as effective at offense and so people are having to use these eviscerates defensively instead of offensively in shadow decks and because of that they're too expensive to be used defensively you know like retribution paying three mana or three power to kill a unit defensively works but paying five mana to kill a fire unit when there's four of them on the board is not going to do anything. What would be more helpful is to play a card like Corrupted Behemoth that can kill multiple enemy units and gain you health, you know, as compared to Eviscerate, which is just clearing one of what could potentially be multiple units beating down on your face. You know, people just aren't Voltroning up enough. People are going wider than they were in other formats. And so Eviscerate's just not doing as much as it was in you know other formats so after that long <laughs> long talk about eviscerate that kind of leaves us with just daring maneuver and actually daring maneuver is doing better in the spreadsheet than than eviscerate is and so even though daring maneuver looks like a less powerful card it's a card that fits the game plan of the deck that it goes in better than eviscerate i think fits the game plan of a shadow deck. And so even, I think, ignoring the fact that we first picked an Eclipse Dragon, you know, Daring Maneuver, I think, is, according to our spreadsheet, the best card in this pack. And looking back at this pack, I agree. You know, the only other card, and this is actually kind of funny, um, is Displaced Arachnidon, which is actually in our spreadsheet a little bit higher than Eviscerate, which I think is pretty shocking because it's more or less a 2-2 two, two for 2 that scouts, which doesn't seem very powerful. But I think it goes along with what I was saying is like, you know, first off, scout is a very powerful ability, a deceptively powerful ability. As I mentioned, 
with my card of the week with Mining Town. And Displaced Arachidon has the Shift 1, and so it's a very flexible card. While, once again, Eviscerate, while powerful, is not very flexible. And if it's not fitting your game plan and it's not helping you stay alive in this format, it ends up, you know, maybe just 5 power is too much for a defensive a defensively minded kill spell uh in this in this format you know you can even if you look at the sheet you know all of the top commons are these are the cheap interaction spells you, you know i'm i'm skipping the non <laughs> the non interaction spells but number 1 retribution number 2 streets of flame number 3 lightning strike number 4 extract number 5 mob roll Number six, Char. You know, those are the top six interaction spells in the format. And one of the, the, I think the thing they all have in common is that they're very cheap. And so they're allowing you, even if you're playing them defensively, to interact with your opponent. And they allow you to play them without having a tempo loss. You're not spending five power to kill a two power unit you know you're maybe spending two power to kill a two power unit or hopefully trading up and spending two power to kill a three power or four power unit i just thought that you know we kind of when we did the draft last week we we weren't really looking at the data and we we're just kind of going with our guts but it was just a really fascinating i think being able to use the spreadsheet that we have ben spreadsheet to really analyze your draft picks and see like see whether a card you think is good is actually doing well. And I mean, there are some cards like Eclipse Dragon that I think are very powerful and aren't doing as well as you can, but you need to figure out how to explain that away. And I think this uh, this draft, uh, this pick here, uh, really highlighted a lot of the interesting aspects of using the spreadsheet and data to help you pick, pick the the best card in a pack. And this is a situation where I think it's not obvious that Daring Maneuver is the best card in the pack, but it is in the spreadsheet. And if you think about it and analyze it, I think that makes sense. And I think it was the pick here. So I'd be interested in what everyone else thinks about that. I'll post a link to the screenshot of this pick, or you could just listen to episode 19, <laughs> where Ruben and I talk about it. But yeah, it'd be interesting to hear what everyone else's thoughts are about this uh, pick here. So I think this week there will be no um, draft because I'm not a streamer and not really able to talk to myself, as you may have noticed over the last however many minutes uh, <laughs> this podcast has been. But I would like to thank everyone for listening and thank you for making it through this uh, solo cast here. This is the end of our show. So once again, I'd like to remind everyone to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Thumbs up all of Barefoot Farmer's Reddit posts. And please send in all deck lists in exported form to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Thanks for listening. Bye. In fact, uh, Pouncing Drake, the other five fire fire, uh, four four flying um fire unit or sorry that was a weird way to say um actually the other um five five power four four or actually the other five fire fire four four 
flying um, flying uh, unit or 